James, thank you so much. Just as a quick review, or before even the review, I just want to say welcome to everyone here this morning. For those worshiping online, we're so glad you guys have joined us today. And just as a review, we're going through the Gospel of John. And very quickly, John is not like the other three Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three Gospels are known as the Synoptic Gospels. John is different. John was written, was written decades after the other three were written. And he really dives deep into who is Jesus as the Son of God. And at the very end of his gospel, in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John writes the purpose and reason of why he wrote his gospel. And when he wrote it, he was the last surviving apostle. The rest had been martyred for, his faith, for their faith. But this is what John writes at the very end of his gospel. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book. What book? The gospel of John. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the what? Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is why John wrote his gospel. He was an evangelist. And he wrote this gospel in a very unique way so that we would know and that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. And by believing in Jesus, we would have eternal life. That's why. That's why he wrote this gospel. And the reason I'm kind of emphasizing that a little bit is because the gospel of John is not written in chronological order. Some events and some of his teachings found in John are not in chronological order. That might be weird for you, some of us. But remember, why did John write this gospel? Is so that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that we would have eternal life. In this series of the Gospel of John, we're kind of in a sub-series, mini-series called Pursue. And today is Pursuing Relationships. I got a question for you. Have you ever been pursued? Have you ever pursued anybody? A couple people are laughing because you're thinking about dating and pursuing that boyfriend, pursuing that girlfriend. When I was in junior high, we had these boxes that hung up on the wall and there was a long cord that went to a receiver and you'd hold that receiver up. It's called a phone. And I transferred junior highs, about a thousand kids. I was about this big in junior high, a little bit skinnier. I played football and basketball. I was pretty popular, but I didn't know anybody. And these girls would call my home. Somehow they get my number. What you doing? I hated it. My mom would get so mad. I can't believe it. These days, these girls, they pursue the boys. Back when I was growing up, it was the other way around. Let me tell you about a story about being pursued. It happened in Mexico. I always give in Mexico stories. Myself and the chairman of our elder board of our church, we had to go drive down to Mexico City to do a lot of paperwork for our church. And we met up our, with our lawyer in downtown Mexico City, 25 million people. We got there one night, stayed at a hotel. The next morning, we went to the government office offices. We turned in all of our paperwork. And I was kind of excited because I was kind of wanting to tool around in Mexico City a little bit, go to some fun places to eat. There's a huge Christian bookstore there. And so we did all of our work in the morning. We went to a couple of Christian bookstores. And on the way into Mexico City, we passed the California Pizza Kitchen. And I'd hardly ever gone there, but I loved it. And so I wanted to take Juan with me. So as we left, we got lost in the middle of Mexico City, driving my car. 
Now, because Mexico City has 25 million people in it, they had a couple rules about cars and driving on the streets. And every day, a certain amount of cars were not allowed to drive if you had a certain letter or number on your license plate. Well, I didn't know that. Well, that day we were driving and lost in the middle of Mexico City. Guess who shouldn't be driving their car because the number and letter on their license plate was the day that I should be out on the road. We're on this main boulevard. It's six rows across, six lanes on each side. Traffic light, traffic light, traffic light. We're lost. About that time, on my window. And there's a traffic cop right there. I roll down the window. He says, you're not allowed to be driving today because of your license tag. The light turns green. I said, that doesn't apply to me because I'm a tourist. Woof. Now, it's, there's bumper-to-bumper traffic. And I take off, and he starts running. He's on his feet. And at every traffic light, which is about every 50 yards, are cops. And they are literally standing there checking for cars with the wrong license plate. And I just happen to hit every green light. And as I'm going, I can see the cops are... They're on the radio. The guy's still running. I'm only going about 15 miles an hour, so I'm not like flying down the road. But as I'm getting to every light, it's turning yellow, turning yellow, turning yellow. And I see some motorcycles, cop cars. And I'm trying to weed through because I'm like, if I can just get to the interstate. Now, here he is. This is your pastor, okay? Juan is freaking out. They pursued us for about 20 minutes. And I finally had to go this clover leaf to get on the interstate. Guess what was right there? And this is a true story. Guess what was right there on the interstate? interstate? Cop cars. I get pulled over and I pull out. I get out and they're super cool. They're almost laughing. They can't believe that this gringo would do this. And uh, I helped them with their kids' college fund and was able to leave with a special ticket being pursued. Now, praise the Lord, I didn't get in jail and the car impounded, but Juan needed to go to confession afterwards. He was so scared. And to be honest, when I think about it, it is awful. I did a terrible thing. Being pursued. Jesus pursues us. God pursues us because he loves us. And we're going to look at one of the most well-known Bible verses, if not the most well-known and all of Scripture. It's found in John chapter 3. It's verse 16, but we're going to start here in verse 1. In verse 1, and we'll see if I can read this with my glasses. James, thanks for reading it in Chinese. Let's stand up again. We're going to read some of these verses together. John chapter 3, verse 1. And we're going to do some standing and sitting today. I hope that's okay with you. A little bit of exercise before we go eat lunch. Verse 1 says this, There was a man from the, from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. 
So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be, asked Nicodemus? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this awesome day. Jesus, we thank you for your word. It's living and it's active. And we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear your word, to understand your word, to comprehend it, to embrace it. Jesus, as we study your written word, Father, may we encounter the living word who's Jesus himself. Holy Spirit, speak to us, speak through me. Bring conviction, encouragement, healing, transformation. Spirit, blow as you so desire. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Here's the story, the context. Jesus has already been teaching, preaching, traveling. He's already done a ton of miracles. And there are multitudes following Jesus. And it says here in verse 1 that there was a man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee. He was the leader of the Jews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Not only is he a Pharisee, but he's part of the Sanhedrin, which was the religious ruling group that ruled all of Israel religiously. Nicodemus was well-respected. He was honored. And it's, he's one of the only Pharisees who Jesus showed, compa- not compassion, grace and kindness. You see, the Bible says that God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And the word for resist is putting your hand up, your open palm to the forehead of somebody, resisting the proud. And with almost every Pharisee in the gospel, Jesus is kind of duro. He's hard, as we would say in Spanish, because they were arrogant and they were prideful and they were self-righteous and they actually were keeping people from God's kingdom. And Nicodemus was a leader of those Pharisees, but he was not like the other Pharisees. It says that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. And we can see how Nicodemus truly respects and honors Jesus. Why? Because he calls him rabbi. Now, Jesus was a poor carpenter. He had never gone to any rabbinic school or training to become a rabbi. In the eyes of everyone around, Jesus would just have been a self-proclaimed teacher. Who is he? He doesn't have the right PhD. He doesn't have the right seminary degree. He hasn't been part of the religious establishment. So who is this Jesus? And that's how most of the Pharisees and religious leaders saw Jesus. Not Nicodemus. Nicodemus calls him rabbi. A term and word of great honor and respect. And then he says, teacher, we know that you come from God. He is not blowing smoke all around Jesus. He is not brown-nosing him. He is not trying to manipulate Jesus. This is an honest declaration from Nicodemus to Jesus. Rabbi and teacher, you come from God. We know you do because you cannot do the things you're doing. You cannot do the signs and wonders that you're doing if you were not from God. Powerful declaration. And he comes to Jesus at night. A lot of people believe, and this could be true, because he was afraid. Maybe. I thought a lot this week, or maybe it was out of great honor. Because maybe Nicodemus got it. That he knew that as a Pharisee of Pharisees and part of the religious Sanhedrin, he knew that if he went during the day and everyone found out about it, and everyone knew about it, that he would cause this huge religious stir. 
And maybe he knew that he would be an impediment and a stumbling block to Jesus' followers. And instead of causing this huge uprising, this huge huppity-do or whatever word you want to term and call it, he wants to go quietly and privately to have an honest, real discussion with the Son of Man to truly begin to understand, who are you? Honor and respect. And Jesus has this amazing way where he takes a regular conversation and turns it into a spiritual conversation at a blink of an eye. How does Jesus respond? He says, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then Jesus goes into this whole conversation about being born again, about being born of the Spirit, about how this wind blows, and you don't know where the wind comes from or where is it going, but you can see its effect. It's the same way with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like wind, and the Holy Spirit will move, and it'll work, and he'll work in the lives of men and women. And you might not know where the Spirit is coming from or where the Holy Spirit is going, but you see the results, and you see the effects, and you see changed lives. And he's talking all about being born again. And born again for a lot of us as Southern Baptists, as evangelicals, it's a common term we have. What does born again mean? Rebirth, a second birth, a new birth, revival, renewal, transformation by the presence and power of Holy Spirit. And it happens when someone confesses Jesus as Lord and believes that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, was buried and rose again. And when they put their faith in Jesus, they're born again. John talks a lot about being born again, especially in 1 John of his letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. John wrote four books in the Bible, the Gospel of John, and then three letters that you'll find at the very back of your Bible. And he wrote those books all about the same time, talking about being born again. And Jesus talks about right here, and we're going to dive into it. But as Jesus is talking about being born again, how does Nicodemus respond in verse 9? What does he say? How can these things be? I mean, Nicodemus comes to him, and Nicodemus has so much to say and so much to ask. He's not, I think he's not really sure how to start with Jesus. Except for we know you come from God. You're a teacher and you're a rabbi, and I see the miracles. And and Jesus dives into being born again. And Nicodemus is like, what? I'm an old man. How am I going to get back in my mother's womb? She's already dead. I I mean, he's so confused. How can this be? And man, I love Jesus loving, backhanded, soft, rebuke. Let's stand and read 10 through 18. If you're at home, stand with us. Verse 10, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, we speak what we know and what we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I had told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who's descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now here's a verse none of you have ever heard. For God loved the world in this way, 
He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he does not believe, he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. You may be seated. As Jesus and Nicodemus are talking, Nicodemus is so confused. How can this be? And Jesus lovingly rebukes Nicodemus. He's saying, you're the teacher of Israel. You're a Pharisee of Pharisees, and you don't understand what I'm saying. You should. You totally should understand. And and the reality is Nicodemus should understand. You see, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, so many of the prophets talked about being born again, being birthed over again, being having water from the Holy Spirit, from God the Father, poured out upon them, renewing their minds, renewing their hearts, being washed of their sins. All, most of the Old Testament prophets talk about that. And this imagery that Jesus is using, if he was a Pharisee, and he was not only a Pharisee, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, would have had the whole Old Testament memorized. And for whatever reason, and the scriptures say in the New Testament that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see and understand. That's a reality. That's a truth. If you have a friend, a coworker, a, 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 a family member who doesn't understand the gospel, don't get mad at them. You will never convince them. In fact, you can't convince them. It's only by the Holy Spirit. It's his job to convince And remember, we have an evil one who hates us and he's a liar and he's a thief and he comes to kill and destroy. Pray that God would take that veil from their eyes, of their mind and their hearts to see and understand truth. And Jesus says here, how can you understand about the stuff that we talk about when I'm only talking about earthly examples? How in the world are you going to understand about heavenly examples? And Jesus talks about, we speak what we've seen and heard. Who's the we? It's Jesus, it's John the Baptist, it's Holy Spirit, possibly his disciples. And he says, we talk to you all the time about what's truth and you don't believe our testimony. How in the world are you going to understand if I start talking about heavenly things? Because there's only one who has descended and ascended and that's the son of man. Who is the son of man? It's Jesus. In fact, the son of man is Jesus' favorite title about himself. And it comes from Daniel chapter 7, one of the most profound descriptive prophecies about the Messiah. When Daniel sees all of heaven open and he sees the throne room and he sees the Father, and then he talks about in chapter 7, there comes one like the Son of Man and his appearance is brighter than the sun. And he describes the Son of Man, who is the Lord, who's the Messiah, who's the Christ. And when Jesus comes on stage, he declares himself as the son of man. It doesn't mean anything that he's human, but that he is the promised Messiah to come. And Jesus is saying, I'm the only one who's been in heaven and been on earth, and I understand it all. I am the son of man. Nicodemus still doesn't get it, I can imagine. And then we come to to the crux and the very epicenter of all of Scripture. Verse 14 through 18. Look at what Jesus says. Just as Moses lifted up the son of the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. 
Jesus is referring to Moses and the Israelites when they are back in the desert. And when they wandered the desert for 40 years, say 40, 40 years. And there was a time when these serpents were coming out. They were biting the people and the people were dying and they were calling out to Moses. And God told Moses to create a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. Have you ever looked at this, at the symbol of medical, of a medical doctor? What is it? Where does it come from? Because when the Israelites were in the desert, And when they were being attacked by these serpents, God told them, look at that bronze serpent and you'll be healed. And that happened. And Jesus is reminding Nicodemus, remember what God did then for our ancestors. And then the same way that that serpent was raised up, the son of man, who's me, Jesus, must be lifted up. This is one of the verses that we used all the time in Mexico. And I want to encourage you today. Lift up Jesus when you share the gospel and lift up only Jesus. Many times we can wreck our testimony because we begin arguing about other stuff. Lift up Jesus, point them to Jesus. Because scripture says, if we lift up the son of man, he will draw all people to himself. So we lift up high Jesus in everything we say and do. And Jesus says, everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. And then here we go at this verse. It's the most well-known verse in all of scripture. For God loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world Through him. God so loved the world. The world is us, the people, that he gave. You see, love is not a feeling and love is not a sentiment. The love of God, agape or agape, I'll probably say agape because that's how we say it in Spanish. Agape love is a 100% total commitment for the well-being of another. And agape love flows and it comes from God. And for all eternity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's three persons, one God. They They were agaping each other for all eternity in perfect unity, perfect fellowship, perfect relationship. And agape love, God-given love, love that flows from God is always going to give and always be committed for the well-being of another. Always. And God created the whole universe, not because he was lonely, but for his glory. Why did God give his one and only son? Why? We see that God so loved the world and the world refers to us, humans. But why did he give his one and only son? Here's the deal. Most of you know this, but I know at a group this large, some of us might not know this at all. Some of us might have heard this our whole lives and that veil is still covering our eyes. And Chris, we're going to go to the Romans road. God created all of creation. It was perfect. It was very good. He created Adam and Eve as image bearers of him, as the crown jewel of his creation. Many of you know the story. 
Adam and Eve sinned, and when they sinned, they had broken that covenant relationship with our Heavenly Father. And Scripture says, we call it the Roman road because it's four verses found in Romans. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says that all have sinned. And sin is not just the quote-unquote bad things we do. It's a condition of who we are being separated from God, missing the mark. All have sinned. There's only one human that has never sinned, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. All have sinned. All fall short of God's glory. That's what Romans 3.23 says. That next signpost in Romans on the Roman roads is Romans 6.23 that says the wages of sin is death. When we are born, we're still born and created in God's image. But when we're born, we're dead in our sin and trespasses. We are completely and utterly dead. We are not God's children just because we were created in his image. There's only one way to become God's children, sons and daughters. And I'll tell you how to do that in a second. But when we are born, we are born, yes, and created in his image. And we have eternal, unbelievable value because we're created in God's image and because God loves us. But because we are descendants of Adam and Eve, we have sin. It's part of our emotional, mental, physical, spiritual DNA. And there's nothing we can do to get rid of it. I got COVID six weeks ago, and I could have promised everything to the Lord Jesus to get rid of that COVID. Couldn't. We have sin and we are sinners. And because of it, there's no, we can't be good enough. We can't go to church enough. We can't make enough promises and vows to God to get rid of that sin. And the wages of that sin is death. And it says in Hebrews that a man and woman will live one time. After we die, we face judgment. And because we're sinners, our destiny is hell. Separation from God forever. Many of us think, well, if I'm just good enough or do good enough, or, you know, deep down, God really loves me. And because he loves me, he'll accept me. Not unless you've received his forgiveness. And I'll tell you how to do that in a minute. Most of you know. We can't be good enough. We can't earn his forgiveness. It's impossible. And when we die physically, we'll be eternally separated him forever. God is a good, loving, just, perfect, righteous God. And because he's all of those things and more, he just can't blindly close his eyes to the evil and sin that we do and we've committed and we are and just wash over it for nothing. In order, Scripture says this, in order for there to be forgiveness, Blood needs to be shed. That's God's economy of salvation. There needs to be a sacrifice. And because God loves us so much, because he didn't want us to wallow and live and die and live eternally in our sin forever, he sent his one and only son, who's Jesus, the eternal second person of the Trinity. And Jesus voluntarily came down the Father and Son and Spirit did not play rock, paper, scissors to see who would come down. Before creation, Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, told his Father, I will go. 
and I'll voluntarily become a human and I'll live just like each and every one of them. I'll be tempted and tried in every way and resist sin and be sinless. And I'll take the sins of the world upon my body and I'll let my blood be shed upon a cross so that they can be forgiven, so they can have eternal life. So Jesus died on the cross, he was buried, and he stinketh for three days. And you know the story, and in two months we'll celebrate it. He rose from the dead, conquering death. And the scriptures say that salvation is found in no one else. Say no one. No one else. Except for Jesus Christ. And see that third signpost of the Romans road, Romans 5, 8, the Bible says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that fourth signpost in Romans is this. If you confess with your mouth, this comes from Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus, your Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if we believe that he is raised from the dead, we also believe that he died on the cross for us. You will be saved. And us as North Americans, we have a hard time because when we think of belief and we think of confession, it doesn't carry the weight that Scripture talks about. Believing, according to John 3.16, is leaning your whole weight upon. It's faith. Confessing is not just, yeah, I believe. Anyone can say that. But it is a total dependence upon. And we confess, Jesus, your Lord. So what does that mean? Jesus, everything that you say, I surrender to, I bow down to, I do. Not to earn his salvation, but as a response of love to his salvation. We surrender to Jesus and we fall in love with Jesus because he first loved us. And so when Jesus says here, for God so loved the world, that amazing great love, God did not want to see us or allow us to be lost forever in our sins, but he gave us his son that everyone who believes in Jesus shall not perish. That's eternal damnation and hell forever without God, but have eternal life. And he says, everyone, and this would be radical for Nicodemus, not just for the Jews, but everyone. Gentiles too. Everyone. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. There's this huge warning right here in verse 18. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned. When we talk and share the gospel, the love of Jesus to people, I've had people tell me, you're judging me. Don't condemn me. I'm not judging you, but you're already condemned. I was condemned. We're already, every human is already condemned to eternal judgment. And Jesus is the great rescuer. He's come and he's paid that price. And in order to be saved, everyone needs to confess with their mouth, Jesus, your Lord, and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. And when we do that, we'll be saved. That's the great and good news. Jesus came to save the world. But this pursue campaign, 
the hundreds of thousands of new people moving here, the 135 different languages and cultures that are here, we have this amazing opportunity for all of our lives. If God keeps us here at Woodbine for a week, for a year, for a century, if he sends us to California or Zimbabwe or Chad or Argentina, we are called, as that blue sign out there says, to engage the whole person with the whole gospel of Jesus Christ anywhere, anytime, with anybody. What does that mean for us? I want us to stand and trail worship team. You guys can come back. There's three things. How do we apply this passage to our lives? How do we apply this passage to our lives? The first one is just this. I want to encourage you guys, worship and praise God for his great love and gift of Jesus. That should be our first first response. And most of us I know here are believers. We're Christians. We've already put our faith in Jesus. So when we read John 3, 16, 3, 17, 3, 18, our first response would be, thank you, Jesus, so much. Father, thank you that you gave your son to die on the cross for my sins. I praise you and I thank you for that. The second one is this. For those of us who truly love Jesus, engage the whole person with the whole gospel of Jesus Christ anywhere, anytime with anybody. Your neighbors family members, co-workers, fellow students, teachers. Some of us have the amazing gift of evangelism. We can convert this speaker to come accept Jesus. Other of us, it scares us to death to think about having to tell someone about Jesus. We're all called to shine the light and love of Jesus to those around us. The third one, and this is a very specific challenge, just to the life of our church with the Pursue Campaign to actively participate in the Pursue Capital Campaign. And that first starts out with prayer. Everything we do centers around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is God calling you and me practically with this capital campaign over these next two years? As we pursue Jesus, building for people, and we're not talking about just buildings, building his kingdom and believing that he'll do far more than we could possibly ask or imagine. The last one is this. And this is vital because for some of us here, it could mean eternal, your eternity. We're going to pray a prayer. It's a simple prayer to put your faith in Jesus. There could easily be people in this room who've never put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. People listening online. If you've been religious your whole life, that does not bring forgiveness. It's accepting Jesus Christ, believing in Him as Lord and Savior. I want all of us to pray this out loud. But if today is the day where you finally surrender and bow your knee to the Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior, I want you to come over and talk with me or one of our team members of our next steps over here afterwards. We would love to talk with you. But I want everyone, including those worshiping with us online, to repeat this prayer after me. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love and your grace. I thank you that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only Son 
so that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life and not perish. Father, I confess to you, I am a sinner. I repent of my sin. I believe that you, Jesus, you took my sin on your body. You died on the cross for my sins. You shed your blood for the forgiveness of my sins. I believe that you were buried. And I believe that three days later, you rose from the dead. And I confess you as my Lord and Savior. I receive your forgiveness. Father, I receive your gift of love and of forgiveness. And it's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. Let us worship him.